0: Welcome, friends, to Charlie and Dropouts, and the first episode of a recurring series I'm calling Field Studies. I'm your guide for today, Victor Hunter of the and Dropouts podcast, a member of the Axe of the Blood God network. Check out patreon.com slash axe of the blood god for all sorts of excellent RPG-related podcast content, none of which is particularly like this episode. This is the kind of thing I make when no one is looking. Field Studies is a guided audio tour through the many beautiful locales within the world of Final Fantasy XIV. What I hope to do with this series is shed some light on the in-game lore, as well as the real-world inspirations for the flora, fauna, architecture, and designed elements of these beautiful digital spaces. Much like the Hoplology 100 series, where I delve into the history behind the weapons of FF14, these episodes are designed for players, and non-players alike. In fact, I love hearing when someone enjoys these episodes despite not actually playing FF14. You can either listen to these episodes as standalone podcasts, but I'll also be treating them as a guided tour, where I'll be bringing up landmarks and points of interest as we encounter them. In this way, I hope it becomes a fun reason to revisit old locations and a chance to Recontextualize some of the places we visit as the Warrior of Light and sometimes quickly forget until it comes up five years later in a roulette. For listeners following along in game, there are a few different ways you could approach this. My recommendation is opening up the Duty Finder menu, clicking on that little gear icon in the top left to open your Duty Finder settings, and selecting Unrestricted Party, then selecting Lost City of Amdapur, and pressing join. This will let you enter the dungeon solo with your current level. Lost City of Amdapur is a level 50 dungeon, so for the most relaxed experience, level 70 or higher will likely breeze through any encounters that come up. If you're closer to 50 and don't have the gear to completely wash these bozos, then in the duty finder settings, feel free to select Explorer Mode. This will let you enter the dungeon with no monsters, a more chill experience, and available to more players, but keep in mind that if I start talking about certain enemies during the tour, you'll obviously be missing the visual aid to accompany the commentary. It's your choice. I also recommend heading to the physical entrance of the instance from the map. You know, those little blue glowing... Aurora-type things that, that show you where an instance starts from. It's not necessary, but again, I find it helps me understand the surrounding geography a bit more and contextualizes the space, like like the difference between using Google Maps to get somewhere and really understanding a neighborhood. In this case, you'll want to teleport yourself to the Camp Tranquil Etherite in the South Shroud, coordinates... 1430. With those logistics out of the way, I'll let you mosey over there, get your duty finder settings ready. Also, now might be a good time to grab yourself a drink, make a little snack. I'll meet you over there in a minute. As we stand before the gate to Amdapur, a few things strike me. First of all, like many instanced dungeons in Final Fantasy XIV, little to none of it is visible from outside the instance. This is just one of those video gamey things that we subconsciously suspend our disbelief for all the time. Sometimes, in Final Fantasy XIV, you'll see beyond the edges of the walkable area, low-poly versions of familiar landmarks in the distance to denote the location you'll end up in once you cross the threshold of the loading zone. Limsa-Liminsa is a good example of a place that seems visible from many of the surrounding areas. Or Ishgard, famously looming in the distance for those of you bound to a Realm Reborn. These low-poly, forced-perspective stand-ins are just out of reach, but give the geography a veris militude that goes a long way towards making Eorzea feel like a cohesive place. But that loading zone, the, the space between, the, the moment of blackness while your destination loads feels like so many things to me. It's, it's certainly exciting to enter a new area for the first time and anticipate the reveal, But as I play longer and longer, I think about that loading screen like a a scene transition in a narrative, a a jump from one scene in our character's life to another, a moment where control is ripped from us, the player, and the warrior of light acts entirely on their own. For instance, the loading zone just south of us, from the south shroud to eastern thanelin, gives us no familiar landmarks in the distance. Only what we can assume from the art assets that exist off in the distance are malms and malms of forest and mountain before emerging right next to Eastern thanelin's colossal burning wall. That space for the player is liminal, but for the warrior of light, our actor is full of potential. As I'm recording this, I walked back and forth between these zones and realized that while it's cloudy and pouring rain in eastern Thanalan in this moment, it's a beautiful sunny day in the South Shroud. Just further driving home the fact that despite being adjacent to one another in the game's directory, these places are absolutely meant to be more distant than FF14 is showing us. So how does this relate to the lost city of Amdapur? Well, I bring it up because Amdapur is one of those places where the exit from the overworld and the entrance to the dungeon are basically one-to-one. Let's jump in now so you can see what I mean. I'll, I'll give you a second to queue up your duty finder, and then I'll count us in. Ready, check. Three, two, one... Commence. So, here we are in the lost city of Amdepore. If you turn around from this spot and look back the way we came in, you'll notice what I was saying earlier: that just beyond that tangle of web and fungus is the other side of the wooden gate we were looking at from the south shroud. If we back up a bit towards the middle of this plaza we start out in and and again look back towards the entry gate and look up, we can see something that doesn't really seem to get mentioned all that often when Amdapur is brought up. The entire city seems to exist within the trunk of a giant dead tree. It's not as easy to tell from inside the dungeon, but but again, from the South Shroud, we could easily see that the entire city is contained in this trunk, which appears to be petrified, with with smaller trees growing out of it at points. I can't seem to find any part of the lore that mentions this aspect of Amdapur, which makes me think that the, the dead trunk asset we see in the South Shroud served another purpose. Concealing Amdapur while they figured out what the heck it was going to look like. If we turn around now and start to walk along the intended path, one thing I want to point out before leaving this little entryway plaza is the stone archway in front of us leading further into the city. As we know, the different eras of civilization are broken up into astral and umbral eras. Astral, being eras of prosperity and growth, while an umbral era is ushered in by a major calamity. As seen at the end of 2.0, the decision to begin an astral era and end an umbral one is almost entirely political. The events of FF14 take place near the end of the sixth astral era, which lasted nearly 1600 years. Immediately before that, was an event that is referenced often in various side quests throughout the game. The Flood that marked the beginning of the Sixth Umbral Era. You may recognize it from the Void Ark raid series, the Red Mage quest line, or from spotting Nune Hope, an ark sitting conspicuously atop a mountain in the peaks of Garibania. This Flood is what led to the shape of the Eorzea we see today. But just before that antediluvian Aorzia had a very different balance of power it's there in the fifth astral era that amdapur was a major player we don't yet have exact dates for the fifth astral era but by process of elimination we can assume it ended around 1600 years ago and began anywhere up to about 3000 years ago for reference an approximate analog for modern-day Earth would be the rise and fall of ancient Greece, give or take a century or two. And much like the era we on Earth refer to as Classical Antiquity, Fifth Astral Era Aorzea was chock-full of city-states. And these places had wildly different cultures and architecture. If you've ever held or attended a ceremony of eternal bonding you may recognize the design of the spires on either side of this archway. These spires are a distinct element of Amdepori architecture and crop up in nearly everything they've had a hand in. The Sanctuary of the Twelve, where FF14's equivalent of weddings are held, was, in fact, discovered recently in the timeline, but dates back to early in the Fifth Astral Era, when civilization was rebuilding after the previous Calamity, And faith in the twelve gods of Eorzea was what gave people hope for the future. It's unknown whether it was specifically Amdapori architects or which designs influenced which, but it's a nice piece of connective tissue between this dungeon and a structure that many would have seen up to this point in their adventure. It's a little piece of internal rhyme that suggests a level of thought and care into the backgrounds of these cultures, just from a sad little broken gate. If we head down these first few steps and look to the left, you can see another example of these spires with its distinct cross-hatched pattern. Of course, this one has obviously crumbled into disrepair. As we head further down the staircase, and before we pull this first batch of monsters, I want to make sure I don't forget to mention one of my favorite things about depo the weather the more recent dungeons in ff14 are predominantly concerned with storytelling and using the dungeon as a setting for furthering a larger narrative that's fine and all but it often means that temporally speaking the dungeons are set at a very specific time and place because of this we don't often get to see the effect that dynamic weather and day-night cycles have on the environments. Amdapur is a beautiful example of a dungeon that takes on a completely different character under different conditions, and it makes it a wonderful place to revisit. The miasmic spores that cloud our view are ever-present, but the sun still manages to cast stunning shadows over Amdapur, especially at dawn and at night, the bioluminescent fungi punctuate the corners of the city streets. Let's go ahead and confront these two demon stools. The history and application of taxonomy in Eorzea is a whole thing, but for the sake of these tours, I'll do my best to give an idea of each enemy's place in the larger classification of both living and non-living creatures. There are Three kingdoms sorted into Bloodborne, Bloodless, and Transcendence, according to the Reimdall Codex, the most prominent catalog of Eorzean fauna. Within the kingdom of Bloodborne is the class Seedkin, and within that class we find the genera Funguar, and if we sort out that genera into species, we will find the branch that contains our pal here, the Demon Stool. Obviously, a play on a term we're all familiar with, the toadstool. That's what I needed. In 17th century England, toads were believed to be poisonous. I personally remember growing up and learning incorrectly through cultural osmosis that touching a toad would give you warts. So the term toadstool was... Middle English shorthand to keep people away from mushrooms they also believed to be poisonous. It stands to reason, then, that a demon stool would be able to mess you up real good. It's tough to say if there's anything to back that up, though. Members of the Funguar family are a delicacy in dishes across Eorzea, and some real-world purple-capped equivalents include the violet webcap and the amethyst deceiver, both of which are technically edible. That said, the lilac fiber cap is a purplish mushroom that is, in fact, poisonous. So please, for the love of God, do not take this Final Fantasy XIV podcast as foraging advice. I'm begging you, please, 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 just be cool. I cannot take that heat. Next up is an interesting group of enemies, the Wamura, the Ruins Dross, And uh, the Gremlin. First up, the Wamura. I have tried, but I cannot seem to find an origin for this name beyond the appearance of the Final Fantasy XI enemy of the same name. Wamura are members of the Vilekin class, a name that I consider to be editorializing a bit more than a scientist ought to, but go off, I guess. guess. Didn't realize this was frondelon Rymdal Savage. <laughs> Dross is a term used to refer to the impure junk metal produced during metalwork. Again, pretty harsh name to give to this poor little slug just minding his own business. Gremlin. We're not getting into right now. I don't have time for you, Gremlin. I I truly don't. You've. You mess things up. I don't know what your deal is. This next batch of enemies is in our first area of Amdapur that is named on our map, the Agora. In ancient Greece, the Agora was the name given to the large, open-air space central to life in the city. It was the place for merchants to hawk their wares, public declarations to be made to the citizens, philosophers to engage in the hip new trend known as the Socratic method, and for people to just hang out. The Agora of Amdapur tells this story in the empty storefronts that line the sides of the plaza. It's no surprise this once-proud city collapsed. Look in those shops. Judging by this environmental storytelling, it appears to have been an entirely urn-based economy. Props to whoever staked their claim in the east side of the market selling, I don't know, are those coffins? Treasure chests? Whatever. If we head down the steps of the Agora, we're confronted by the self-explanatory mold colony and its tainted mold offshoots, as well as a slightly more interesting foe, the Hecties. I know I brushed him off earlier, but The gremlin we encountered here was our first confrontation with a Voidsent. A very nice bit of foreshadowing for the final encounter of Amdapur. Hectes is our second example of a denizen of the Void. A plane of existence also known as the Thirteenth. We'll have plenty of opportunity to get into the Void in later episodes, but for now, it's important to know that the denizens of the Thirteenth were once very much like us until a flood of darkness twisted them and made them into ether-starved monsters who seek out gateways to our realm so that they may sup on our ethereally rich bodies. It's through small tears in the membrane between our world and the Thirteenth that smaller entities like the Gremlin and the Hecties may enter. So we see them in larger numbers more often than we do the more powerful Void Scent. Voidsent are classified under the kingdom of Transcendence, beings that blur the line between ethereal and corporeal. While the Hectais is likely to slip in through a rift of any size, several species of the Hectais family, such as Melt from the East Shroud or the notorious, notorious monster Hakutaku in the Pagos region of Eureka, are more formidable the Hektai was originally designed by Yoshitaka Amano for Final Fantasy II, and the look of the monster has stayed relatively consistent since its inception. If you want a piece of the Hekt pie yourself, you can acquire the Hecti singular, minion, from the vendor Iuna Kotor in the South Shroud for three Gelmoran potsherds from the Palace of the Dead. The minion flavor text notes that hecties are one of the few void scent that have been observed reproducing in the source, which they do by budding. It's implied that your singular hecti will sprout more eyes before long, assuming it gets an ethereally balanced breakfast. As we leave through the gate at the base of the Agora, we encounter a madmite for the first time, a species of vilekin in the diarmite genera. Diarmites are technically the name for male members of the mite family, with the females dubbed bane mites. Mites can be found in all shapes and sizes across Eorzea, but the most memorable for early adventurers is Graphius. The bane mite that serves as the final encounter in the Thousand Maws of Todorok. A-rank hunters might also recognize Gertab from the North Shroud from this family. Rounding the bend, we can dispose of a couple more mad mites and make our way to the entrance of the Halcyon Court. And hey, if you're using this podcast as a sleeping aid, maybe skip the next part. The Decaying gourmand is a fantastic name for this beautiful, wretched fungal nightmare. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis is a fungus found in tropical forests, famous for its ability to hijack the mind of a very specific tribe of ants. First, It infects the ant by breaking down its exoskeleton using enzymes. It then creates fungal clusters around the ant's brain, compromising its mobility and causing it to convulse. Once the ant has fallen to the forest floor, the fungus gains control of the ant's nervous system and instructs it to climb up a nearby plant. Once on a leaf, the fungus will instruct the ant to climb onto the underside, enabling the proper growth of the fungus's fruiting body. Then, to prevent the ant from falling, it will cause the ant's jaw to atrophy as it bites down on the leaf, creating a lockjaw effect that keeps it in place while the fungus is at the optimal position for its fruiting body to spread its spores. That's what I needed! That sucks! The decaying gourmand is a type of rotting gubu, an unfortunate creature that has been possessed by a very similar fungus. The gubu technically dies early on in the process, but the fungus uses its ambulatory functions to work its way back to other gubus, where it can spread its spores and continue to infect. Now, here's where I take issue with the record. According to the Encyclopedia Eorzea, the rotting Gubu is sorted under the Ashkin class of the bloodless kingdom. Ashkin is typically reserved for creatures rendered undead through magics or ethereal interference. Now, while the body of the Gubu itself is, is certainly deceased, I feel it would be more appropriate to classify the fungus itself as the driving force in this relationship, in which case I would expect to find these creatures filed under seed kin, like the other fungal monsters we've encountered. Either way, the rotting boo, and by extension, the decaying gourmand, are horrifying. Uh, on the topic of both void scent and rotting gooboos. Eureka Pagos has a case where a void scent actually uses the body of a rotting gubu as its vessel. And he's a, oh, he's a real nasty looking freak. He's very cool. Anyway, kill the decaying gourmand and get it over with. I hate him so much. I, 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 I hate the, the cordyceps growing off of its head. Ugh, everything about it is awful. I love him. Beyond the Halcyon Court, we see our first Wamora Campa, the adolescent stage of the fully grown Wamora. Now, Campa is a suffix used commonly when identifying butterflies and moths, such as the genus Lofocampa or Asterocampa. In that sense, it's used to delineate groups of butterfly and moth, as opposed to its use here where it distinguishes the stages of life for one specific species of vile kin. I I I don't know what to what to do with that. That feels to me like um, you know, liquid snake monologuing to to solid snake about how genes work, and he he doesn't quite get it. It's cool though. As we descend more of the wreckage of central Amdapur, we can see floating plants that appear similar to uh, Rafflesia? Rafflesia? Rf- Rafflesia. I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Uh, I-, I-, I don't know if that's exactly the reference that was being made here because the center seems a little different, but if you've played Animal Crossing, you know about the Rafflesia. It's... um. It's it's a flower that shows up when things are gross, and it smells awful, and it's bad, and it, it attracts bugs. As we vanquish this next mold colony, we emerge through another gate and face a pair of gadflies, apparently thrown into a frenzy by whatever sap this other floating plant so graciously excreted. I haven't been able to identify the inspiration behind whatever that plant is, but... I have no doubt there is a jungle somewhere with orange jellyfish plants that throw up goo to make bugs go crazy. Before we go through this next gate, I like to head to the westmost point of this walkway. Now, your mileage may vary a little depending on the the weather and time of day, but just over the edge, we see what must have been the top of a major building with these big circular designs built into these... I don't know, railings? Aqueducts? Are they ornamental? I can't tell. Either way, I can't think of another point where this particular asset is used, and it's a pattern that stands out amongst the the spires and the quilted-looking stone. To the south, we can see a faint purple glow emanating from the windows of our destination, the Sanctum of Dreams feel free to turn around and, and head along the main path from here, and we can meet back up just before the next mini-boss. I could use this time to summarize some things about the history of Amdapur and the the, the War of the Magi, but I really want to balance these tours out with information that you can't just look up in the Encyclopedia Eorzea or, or on a, a lore-focused YouTube channel. So, while we walk... I'd like to talk about The Lost City of Amdapore's importance to FF14. The Lost City of Amdapur launched in patch 2.2 of A Realm Reborn, titled Through the Maelstrom, in December 2013. If you played the 2.0 dungeons before they were reworked, you'll know that 2.0's dungeon design philosophy was very different than it is in modern FF14. Maps were more sprawling, with dead ends and, and slightly obtuse puzzles to solve, and boss encounters that weren't nearly as streamlined as they are today. As FF14 was struggling to find its identity, the developers were trying to figure out what design elements from 1.0 still worked and what didn't. 2.2 also featured the Second Coils of Bahamut, and 2.1 before it has the Labyrinth of the Ancients. Both of these raids still contain a lot of the vestigial design ideas from early in 14's life, but with the Lost City of Amdapur in particular, you can really pinpoint where they landed on what they consider the sweet spot for dungeon instances. 2.1's Pharaoh Sirius dungeon also shows off this formula of linear path punctuated by boss fights with mechanics that you'll probably get hit by once or twice until you figure out the patterns. In this way, Pharaoh Sirius and Amdapur codified how dungeons would work for the next decade, and they show no signs of stopping. The dungeons of 1.0, and by extension FF11, were built around the idea that they are punishing, and byzantine, and sprawling, and you better be mapping things out as you go. They were designed to be mastered slowly and over time, through sharing of resources and player communication. 2.1 and on has created bite-sized dungeons that prioritize your mastery over your own job and the boss mechanics, to create an experience that is meant to be run over and over through the roulette system. Now, while I think the design that FF14 has landed on works in a lot of ways, I can't help but lament a time when Amdapur would have been designed as a city first and a dungeon second. A time when it would have been possible to get lost a little bit and and stumble onto a street you wouldn't have seen if you were barreling through with a duty finder party of course the budget and resources available for a single dungeon means that amdapore could never be the the fully realized space i wish it was but it's for this reason i love to poke around in the corners of these maps to see what potential there is for more storytelling while i'm off on this little tangent I encourage you to hop over to the lost city of Amdapur hard after this, just to compare and contrast some of the assets that get reused. The opening of hard mode actually starts by taking us down the left side of that first staircase at the opening plaza, and this new path just grazes places like the Halcyon Court as it sort of bobs and weaves back in and out of places we've been in normal. You can actually see most of the urban areas that were present in normal from hard mode. And it, it drives me crazy to see those areas that were blocked off during normal off in the distance now free of debris. And just, ooh, they're just so close to being explorable. Oh. Anyway, here we are at the Tower of White, and the Ariok. I don't know a ton about the Tower of White it took me a moment to realize that the Tower of White doesn't refer to the tower ahead of us, but rather the one below us. This boss arena takes place atop the Tower of White, with its sun and moon reliefs carved into the stone at our feet. I wish I had more to say about the Tower of White. Ugh, white as in white magic? Probably. Why sun and moon? What, whoa, what purpose does it serve? Not a clue. Ah, ah leaving it. The Oriok, then, is a void scent that was used by the Maki mages to fly lesser void scent over the city walls to then drop them behind enemy lines. It's noted that the Oriok communicates with bat-like sounds, which is likely a reference to the Oriok's first appearance in the series, FF11, where the Oriok is a bat-type notorious monster in the Boston Oubliette. He also makes an appearance in a more familiar form in FF12 as a rare enemy. Neither these incarnations, nor his namesake in the book of Genesis of the Old Testament, or his cameo as a demon in Milton's Paradise Lost, explain his love of Womura scales. Now, before we plunge into the Sanctum of Dreams, right beyond this loading zone is a broken door. Again, the, the black screen between central Amdapur and the Sanctum of Dreams implies so much. I mean, obviously we go through this door and then and then we just sort of, I don't know, appear in the Sanctum of Dreams? What, Whatever. It's not important. What is important is that I zoomed in and illuminated that door through g and it's not an asset I recognize from anywhere else. Plus... Ooh, the emblem in the center of it is so familiar, it's killing me. If anyone can point me to a place it's been used, please let me know on Twitter or, or on the Discord. It's very similar to a common emblem in Japan of the Ginkgo Plant. After the War of the Magi, some people sought refuge in the Wood, while others, predominantly the Dusk White Elizin and some Hure, went underground and formed the underground city of Gelmora. Those that stayed topside and appeased the elementals of the Black Shroud established Gridania. I bring this up because if you're familiar with places like the Palace of the Dead or other Gelmoran ruins around the Black Shroud, the stonework of Amdapur was obviously a major influence on the architecture of Gelmora. The many Torches and and other small stonework we've seen around Amdapur bears an uncanny resemblance to things like the Cairns of Return from the Palace of the Dead and and other Gelmoran constructs. So, if Gelmora's main takeaway from Amdapur was its ability to work with stone, then what influence did Amdapuri culture have on the burgeoning city of Gridania? We can see from Gridanian architecture that it makes little use of stone, and it's no surprise that any wooden structures from Amdapur were unlikely to survive the ravages of two calamities over the millennia. But this door, this door feels distinctly Gridanian to me. Part of it is because of the colors. It's an orange and brown, which you don't see anywhere else in Amdapur, and the, the, the design of the relief on the door brings to mind the the carline canopy and other gridanian structures but but the big thing is that symbol in the middle that ginkgo leaf in 1.0 gridania was meant to be based on a shinto-like system of beliefs the elementals of the forest were a stand-in for the shinto kami and the way the spirits of the forest communicated with its inhabitants were all rooted in this philosophy. Obviously, with the introduction of the Far East, this comparatively loose connection was seen as redundant and discarded in favor of something far more literal. Shinto shrines in Japan are regularly accompanied by ginkgo trees, and they're seen as a symbol of longevity, with the leaves and seeds being used in medicine to this day. The leaf is also common in traditional family crests, and is even the current symbol of the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. I like to think that this one door, this, this tiny little asset tucked away in the dark beyond a loading zone, serves as, as some small little reminder of the connection that the modern-day conjurers of Gridania have to their ancestors in Amdapur, and and as a, a tiny little reminder of the original vision for Gridania's cultural identity. On to the Sanctum of Dreams. Our first enemy here is Balzaphon. Uh, like many of our other void-sent friends, Balzaphon is named after a demon from either literature or mythology. In this case, we have a version of the Canaanite god Baal who appears throughout the Hebrew Bible and seems to be the origin point for a million other gods or or interpretations of gods. He may have been the template for Zeus and Jupiter. Baal also means Lord, so tracking down what texts are referring to Baal the guy and Baal the title makes this a, a, a big old mess that I don't have the expertise to cover in any sufficiently meaningful way right now. There are other ball derivatives in FF-14 out there, I'm sure we'll get a chance to give him proper coverage down the line. The Alatar is remarkably similar in appearance to the FF-11 version, which was also its first appearance. Now Alatars belong to the Taurus genera, as much as that means anything when it comes to void scent, and apparently are the result of the void scent inhabiting the body of slaughtered livestock, hence the Tor, meaning bull, I suppose. Aloe means different, so this guy's just a. a different bull. I'm in no position to argue with that assessment. As far as bulls go, that guy's different. One thing I appreciate about these encounters is the use of the white mage stones. While they appear to tether and bind the Voidsent, they also sustain their life force by giving them regen stacks. Uh, not to spoil too much, but it mirrors how the final boss of this area has been shackled by the white magic of Amdapur, but it has also preserved him over the centuries. Our final new enemy is the Dirty Eye of the Araman family. Araman are brought about by a void scent inhabiting the eyeball of an animal. Now, when you consider the existence of the enemy known as the Gobbledygawker, created by grafting an Araman onto the face of a living goblin host, there's apparently endless opportunity for the recycling of eyeballs and swapping of vitreous humors in the fantastic realm of Eorzea. As we descend into the final stop on our tour, The Waking Nightmare. I just want to thank you all for coming along on this walk with me. If you're triggering the final boss's intro cutscene, then you're seeing a visual homage to Diablo's first appearance, the Guardian Force summoning animation from Final Fantasy 8. This fight is also unique for using a different battle theme than usual for A Realm Reborn. This track is Wrath of the Icons, originally composed for 1.0. Despite Diablos not actually being an icon in any way, shape, or form, this has sort of become his theme song, and the melody has returned for both the Shadows of Mock Raid series, as well as an absolute killer arrangement during the final battle in Zadnor in the Save the Queen questline. His opening line of dialogue during the fight is interesting in that it, it implies that he either isn't aware of the passage of time, or at least doesn't know that Amdapur fell ages ago. It's, anyway. I also have no idea what the significance is of the monster symbols on the void gates that open up around him. I, I, mean, I mean, mechanically, I understand the the match game meant to be played there, but Agubu a Wamora, a Griffin, and an Araman. My first impulse was that these void gates were some sort of safeguard installed by the Maki mages that summoned him, but not only does he use the void gates himself in a later appearance, but the Diablo armament underneath Zadnor uses a similar technique, and that thing was built by the Allegans ages ago. If it's an innate skill that Diablos has, then and why those symbols? A gooboo seems a little cutesy for a void scent of this caliber. Anyway, Diablos was originally summoned by the Maki mage Cesare as a sort of nuclear deterrence. The hope was that the threat of Diablos would be enough to cause the Amdapori to surrender. Unfortunately, in 1510 of the Fifth Astral Era, the decision-makers of Mach saw fit to unleash Diablos in the city. Eventually, the White Mages of Amdapur bound Diablos in the Sanctum of Dreams, but it was too late to undo the toll that centuries of white and black magic use had taken on the surrounding land. The flood of the Sixth Umbral Calamity was nigh. Survivors abandoned the lowlands from the mountains of Giribana, And the elementals of the Black Shroud cast a glamour over the ruins of Amdapur to prevent anyone from seeking the powers that lay dormant there. Stripped of ether, the land began to rot, and Amdapur became the city we see today. And that's where our story ends for now. The ramifications of the War of the Magi were massive, and the effects can be found in every corner of Eorzea, so... I hope this revisit to Amdapur was either an enlightening tour or a a helpful refresher, or even just a nice excuse to poke into the corners of a nearly decade-old dungeon at the time of this recording. Either way, thank you so much for joining me for the first episode of the Field Studies series. These are a lot of fun to research and record, but they're a lot of work as well, so... If you would like to support more episodes like this one, please head on over to patreon.com bloodgodpod to chip in a little. You'll also get access to the monthly Charlian Dropouts Roundtable episodes with my fellow hosts, Nadia Oxford and Mike Williams, as well as access to tons of Acts of the Blood God episodes to serve all your RPG needs. Be sure to follow us over on Twitter at bloodgodpod and at charlianpod, as well as myself at Victor E hunter it's victor the letter e hunter and if you enjoy this episode format and want to see coverage of a specific topic please let us know on one of those social media channels or even better head to our acts of the blood god discord channel which you can get access to through our patreon and tell me there thank you so much for listening until next time